This is New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, you might have thought they were extinct, but they are not. In fact, today, there are as many Maya as there were at the time of the European conquest. How U.S.-Iran relations have not exactly improved since the days of the Shah. We judge leaders not just by what changes they make, but what changes they leave behind. And a new graphic novel that treads the line between sacred and profane. I mean, that's part of the intent, that it's this mashup between the, the sacred medium of holy books, like the Quran or the Bible, and the very uh, vulgar pulp medium of comic books. All that and more coming up on New America Now. There are millions of Maya people currently residing in the Americas, mostly in Mexico and Central American countries. Approximately 15% of the Maya population live in the United States. What can these indigenous communities teach us about surviving and thriving in these turbulent times? Mary Jo McConaughey's new book, Maya Roads, One Woman's Journey Among the People of the Rainforest, blends history, adventure, and eyewitness reporting and presents a historical and contemporary account of the people and politics of the Central American rainforest. In August 2011, Maya Rhodes was selected as the Book of the Month by National Geographic Travel Magazine. She spoke with New America Media's Irma Herrera. Mary Jo, welcome to New America Now. Thank you. I would love for our listeners to hear your voice, so if you could read a brief passage from the prologue, beginning with your first venture on the Maya Road in your early 20s. Yes, I'd be glad to. I saw a museum exhibit about the La Candon Maya, who at the time still hunted with bow and arrow, and the women wore dead birds in their hair. And I was fascinated. And being young, I thought, well, I'm just going to go there. On the way, I stopped in the city of San Cristobal de las Casas, a beautiful old colonial city. And really, the first moment I stepped out of the hotel, early in thick fog, I had my first experience with indigenous Maya. In the distance, the outlines of three figures appeared, coming toward me. I stopped to make them out. Men? Women? Wearing what? Whoever they were had seen me, too. They stepped from the high sidewalk into the cobblestone street, even though it ran muddy from overnight rain. I saw the figures were women with indigenous faces, wearing bright blouses and long black wool skirts so feathery in texture they looked like fur. Even in the street, the women swerved as they passed, as if my body emanated an invisible resistance field, keeping them a precise distance away. Buenos dias, I said. One replied with a rapid tightening of the mouth, which I took for a smile, although she did not look in my eyes. Several feet on, the three stepped up to the sidewalk once more. I experienced that disconcerting dance several times during the week I spent preparing for my jungle trip. Sometimes the dance was so subtle. 
Indians avoiding non-Indians, it seemed woven into the movement of the town, as tightly as the woolen ponchos I saw on the streets. That is lovely. Many people um, are surprised to learn that there are Mayas in our contemporary world. Of course, because we thought that the Maya world disappeared with the downfall of the gorgeous city-states, the ruins of which still remain in the jungle. But in fact, the Maya themselves never disappeared. In fact, today, there are as many Maya as there were at the time of the European conquest. They have recovered their numbers after being decimated uh, mostly by disease, also by cruelty, frankly, of the conquerors. Eight million now, speaking some 25, more than 25 languages, about 15% of those Maya are in the United States. Where are they located? Right here in San Francisco, where I'm speaking, you'll find Maya. In fact, one story written a few years ago uh, did a survey and found that Yucatecan Maya, people from the Yucatan in Mexico, listed San Francisco as their number one uh, dream destination. (laughs) Most others are in the southeast. They work in the fields. They work in chicken packing plants. They do the kind of work that, let's say, uh, blacks did at one time many decades ago, and then Mexican immigrants did. And really, this is the new flow from south of the border, uh, indigenous Maya men. Let, Let me back up a little bit and ask you, when you wrote the book... What were your thoughts about what you wanted the book to be? What was the story you wanted to tell? I had been in and out of the Maya world from a young age after covering the wars in Central America and the invasion by the United States in Panama. I decided I just wanted to go up and, and write a book about the beauty of the rainforest that I remembered. But of course, having been through the wars, I saw with different eyes. And I saw how history affected even this pristine, beautiful place. The southern part of Mexico went through a revolution, the Zapatista uprising, Paten suffered from the 30 years of military rule ushered in after the U.S. CIA coup in 1954, and there were massacres in the Paten. So as a book of deep travel and as a journalist, I felt that these were all part of what I would be writing about, and in fact, they were. So it's not only the beauty of the rainforest and the story of the classical Maya, but it's woven through, much as they weave their wipilas and beautiful textiles, with the immediate history of the geography. One of the most moving stories for me in your book is about a community that disappeared and people's reluctance to tell the story of what happened there and your search for the lone survivor. Tell us about that and what the end result was of your work 
and that of many other people to bring truth to light. Paten was a place that people said nothing ever happened during the war, that there had been none of the terrible massacres that there were elsewhere. But I kept hearing about a place called Dos Eres, Two Rs, named after the families that founded the village. It was eliminated completely, 350 people killed, mostly, uh, uh, well, of course, all unarmed, and uh, mostly women, children, um, elderly men. And people did not talk about it at all. I asked, I looked on maps, could not find anything about it, until finally, by chance, I was introduced to a janitor at a local hotel who began to give me his story and found out that he had a son who was a living witness. I tracked him down, and this is all told in one of the chapters of the book, but what I think perhaps we're referring to here is the fact that this is one of 400 villages eliminated by the army by its own account during those years, and these people wanted justice, and they also needed to have proof that their people had died so that they could claim land and continue to survive. And there was an exhumation, the first in the history of Guatemala. And today, even as we speak, the case is being worked on and some of the perpetrators are being brought to justice. That is a remarkable story in the book, very moving. And as you say, that was one of several hundred villages that experienced that uh, horror. Yes, the, the Guatemalans had a democracy for 10 years after the Second World War. But unfortunately, that was the time when the United States believed that its interests were not well served, when its companies suffered the least bit of uh, uh, loss of profit in countries such as Iran. The first of this kind of coup was in Iran in 1953, and they uh, launched the coup in 1954 in Guatemala, and there really wasn't peace until the 90s. And one thing that your book really captures is how the actions and the policies of the U.S. government, in fact, displaced so many people and caused them to have to move to other parts of the Americas. Oh, absolutely, because it's the the big boot. When it stomps down, it reverberates all over the hemisphere. This is not a political statement. It's historical, and it's happened ever since the end of the war, in considering Central America and Mexico, especially the backyard, whatever is done in Washington reverberates strongly throughout the countries to the south. What's ahead for the Maya people? The Maya will not allow themselves again, they've told me, to be cannon fodder for anyone else's resistance. They have a history of continual resistance since the time of the conquest. The Zapatista resistance, the shooting war of which lasted only 10 days, was what I would call successful in that today there is, quote unquote, liberated territory, which is not attached to the government, and where, for instance, indigenous children learn to read and write 
in school in some of these places for the very first time, thanks to the Zapatistas. Now, in Guatemala, there's a very, very strong indigenous movement with political overtones. And with all the migration, Maya are talking to each other in a way they never talked to each other before. So I have a lot of hope for the future for the Maya. Mary Jo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Irma. Mary Jo McConaughey's new book is Maya Rhodes, One Woman's Journey Among the People of the Rainforest. She spoke with New America Media's Irma Herrera. You're listening to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. This week, as thousands of Americans continued to protest the economic policies of their government, the mainstream headlines focused on something else. Iran. According to the State Department, a U.S. citizen of Iranian descent and an Iranian citizen were intercepted in an attempt to use Mexican drug cartels to assist them in assassinating two foreign heads of state on U.S. soil. Now, that's not the plot of the newest Hollywood blockbuster, though many Iran experts agree that it did seem as far-fetched. In February of this year, we spoke with Professor Abbas Milani of Stanford University about Iranian relations with the West. His words speak to decades of tensions that have clearly not subsided. Welcome to the show, Dr. Milani. Thank you for having me. Your biography of the Shah begins with a biography of his father's ascendancy to the throne. And from the beginning of this dynasty's story, there is a repeated and sustained interference by either the British or the American ambassador. Is that an accurate assessment of, of how you've characterized that? Well, I would say that uh, if you're talking about the sh- uh, father's period, the U.S. was still only marginally involved in Iranian politics. I think the Americans were, till 41, essentially uh, observing from 41. I think it's absolutely fair to say that they become one of the two, if not the dominant uh, outside player. What I'm trying to understand is that um, there is a lot of reference in the book about the interference or the participation, direct participation of foreign ambassadors in the important decision-making that took place in Iran. Is that something that's been absent for the last 32 years as well? Because you mentioned in the book that uh, Khomeini also had extensive contacts with the U.S. government ahead of his rise to power. Yes, Khomeini uh, clearly had contacts with the American uh, government uh, through the French embassy. Uh, Khomeini allies had contacts, extensive contacts, again, with the American embassy in Tehran, the American embassy with the assistance from the British, uh, play a very crucial role in neutralizing the Iranian army. In fact, in ensuring that the Iranian army makes a, a kind of a pacted transition with the clergy. In other words, uh, it is at the behest of, at the recommendation of the U.S. that the Iranian military, that was royalist through and through, 
decides not to interfere and decides to make peace with Khomeini and basically throw in the towel. Now, the kinds of influence that foreign embassies might have had in the last 30 years are hard to discern now because much of the evidence is still not available. If you want to find out what kind of influence they had, you would, I think, need to uh, access these archives. And usually there is a 30-year rule, and those are not available. But the glimpse that we have into this realm from the WikiLeaks, uh, if you look at the uh, almost uh, seven, eight hundred documents that have so far been released from the WikiLeaks to public scrutiny. All of them have been released to some of the media outlets, but for mere mortals like us, uh, uh, some seven hundred of them, I think, on Iran, and you could clearly see that the embassies are much uh, more active than we can imagine. That uh, different factions within the regime have contacts with these embassies and try to get political points scored against their opponents. So judgment about how active they are, I think, has to be delayed till the time we can have access to the documents. So basically the myth that that there's been no relations between the Iranian and U.S. governments in the last 32 years is in fact a myth. Can Iran ever be independent of direct or indirect foreign influence? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I think we have, as I said already, ample evidence that the Iranians have had contacts, even with the extensive contacts at times, with the Americans on different moments, on different aspects. They had extensive negotiations, for example, on Afghanistan. And with the weeks leading to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, Iran provided ample help. After the fall of the Taliban, Iran was uh, played a very critical role in helping the Karzai government come to power. So, well, when we talk about the Shah, we have to also address the issue of the clergy, because you mm-hmm. made a reference to the American interests in the Shah sustaining, if not expanding, his appeasement of the clergy. Wasn't that one of the biggest mistakes that he made, though? I think, at least as far as I argue in the book, I think the Shah's most important strategic mistake was his decision to make it impossible for any moderate democratic forces to operate in the country and to not allow any political participation and figure that his main enemies were primarily the left and the Democrats. And the second corollary to this, I think, a strategic error was the belief that the clergy are his allies in this fight. Uh, He very much encouraged uh, the growth of the clergy. In his first decade in power, he very much encouraged the clergy's participation in politics. And in subsequent years, in the 25 years after 53, he also constantly encouraged uh, the clergy. And it is a mistake that uh, many authoritarian regimes in that region have made. It's a mistake the U.S. made in Afghanistan. The mistake of using the clergy as an antidote to problems of Marxism or nationalism or other competing forces in the country? Precisely. Uh, I mean, Sadat tried to use Muslim Brotherhood against the left when he was cutting his ties with the Soviet Union. 
in many other countries in the Middle East, uh, the Islamists are allowed to grow, in fact, encouraged to grow as an antidote to nationalism, as an antidote to democracy. I mean, the, in some cases, uh, regimes are aligning themselves with these radical forces against democratic forces. And Saudi Arabia is the best example that comes to mind. And all of these regimes, and I, I can only talk about the Shah, because I've done some research on that, but they make the mistake of thinking that they can use the clergy and the Shiites and the Islamists as an antidote, forgetting that the Islamists have a claim to power, a plan to seize power, and the organization and the will to power that is required to come to power in uh, moments of crisis. That's exactly what happened to Iran. But why specifically in the case of the Shah, didn't he follow his father's footsteps? His father had a great disdain for the clergy. He cut their wings in many ways. Absolutely. Why wasn't the Shah the, the son like the father in that regard? Well, I think that's one of the key places where the Shah uh, parts company with his father. I, I think there are several reasons, as I've tried to explain in the book. One is, I think, the fact that the Shah, much of his reign was during the Cold War. And this kind of a Manichaean view that the main enemy is the Soviet Union and anyone who fights the Soviet Union is a potential ally was a disease that uh, inflicted not just the Shah, but many countries in the region that inflicted the United States. The United States has now, in retrospect, admitted that that was a mistake. The second reason was that uh, the Shah was himself a religious person, I think. Uh, people don't believe this, but I think he, he was really the, uh, personally religious. Yeah, and he and, didn't have a mistrust of the clergy as his father did because he was religious. Well, he had the mistrust of the clergy uh, as individuals, but as a social force, he thought, and he repeated this more than once, and implemented this in practice, he thought that they are his potential allies. More than once he told his uh, allies that uh, the clergy know that I am the last bastion before communism comes to Iran, and because they don't want communism, they will stick with me. Remember, the fact that his father became the Shah was a direct result of the clergy's intervention. Right. But then he abandoned them immediately. Let, let me talk specifically about Khomeini, the Ayatollah, because mm -hmm. the Shah, I mean, that was he was a key figure, a person individually who led to the Shah's downfall. Did the Shah get, get the feeling or, or have ideas that Khomeini specifically brought him down? Or did he suddenly think, wait a second, the clerical system was the problem, and I encouraged that? No, the Shah went to his grave believing that it was, in fact, the communists that brought him down. He says, you will know that I w was overthrown by a conspiracy of the communists. He also then occasionally says it was also the oil companies and combines, sometimes combines them. He says it was the oil companies and the communists. So he was very much out of touch with the reality of his of his circumstances, which brings us to the issue of his personality. He's repeatedly been known as someone with a weak personality, uh, problems of neurosis, whatever. But you, in your book, you try to go to great lengths, especially in the beginning, when you describe his first years 
as king, that in fact he was quite an assertive, aggressive young king, and he wasn't the weak person that people often portray him as. Well, he was, I think, both a weak person and an assertive person, in the sense that you're absolutely right. I have shown, and I think, I hope conclusively, that this myth that in the first 10 years he, he was resigned to his constitutional role is nothing but a myth. He did, in fact, try to assert himself and regain all of his father's power. The point, uh, however, is that at times of crisis, this assertive character uh, would suddenly uh, become weak and vacillating. Uh, you could see this in uh, events between 1951 to 53 when he was fighting Mossadegh. He literally could not make a decision. The American embassy, the British embassy are constantly in their correspondence complaining about his vacillations and weakness. When he was in power, when he felt in power, as for example he did in 74, he talked in a very strong, almost hectoring tone to American presidents. He preached to Western journalists about the failures of democracy as a disease of the blue-eyed world. Okay, but was that a weakness of judgment then? Because they, well, it's that... both a weakness of judgment, uh, because I don't think democracy is a disease of the blue-eyed world, but it was also an inconsistent pretense in his character in the sense that uh, I have uh, used a Shakespearean metaphor. He is a hare that roars like he tried to roar like a lion. He, he was a tragic figure, and he was a figure that you know, didn't have uh, the kind of uh, decisiveness uh, and the brutality that his own rhetoric uh, demanded. Well, when we talk about the personality of the Shah, I think we're talking about perhaps the central issue of why anyone would have written a biography of him. And that is, was it the Shah who brought Iran to the position that it's in right now? Or was it something else? Well, it's both in the sense that the Shah, I think, brought great economic modernization, social modernization to Iran. He gave Iran in 75, 1975, a level of cultural freedom, for example, that was unimaginable in that country or in the region. For Jews, for Baha'is, for other minorities, there was virtual equality, something that had never existed before and has never existed since. But these were one aspect of his character and one aspect of his legacy. But if someone, the other aspect but, but of if, the legacy yeah. is the fact that he begot the uh, Islamic revolution. And we judge leaders not just by what changes they make, but what changes they leave behind. And part of his legacy is Ayatollah Khomeini, part of his legacy is a modernized Iran. Let's just talk ultimately about the future of Iran. What's next? What about these green leaders that everyone's talking uh, I, about. I have no doubt in my mind that the future of Iran is a democratic future. Um, the Green Movement is part of a democratic uprising, a uh, democratic movement. The movement that overthrew the Shah is now 
incarnated in the Green Movement. Uh, it's almost exactly the same coalition minus the, the clergy. So uh, the coalition has remained the same. They're now stronger, and uh, the international circumstances, the regional circumstances, are even more conducive to democracy. So for me, it is crystal clear that the future of Iran is democracy, but I don't mean that tomorrow the regime is going to fall. This is still a very brutal regime. It has the capacity to inflict pain and violence. It has a desire to stay in power. Uh, it has the money to oil its uh, oppressive apparatus. So uh, it's going to be a difficult road, but that the road is going to lead us to a democratic tomorrow, I have no doubt. And you see that that road will involve uh, the green leaders who, frankly, are a morally compromised group of people. I mean, they have been part of this brutal regime, as you just described it, for the last 32 years. Whether it will... Uh, who it will compromise, who it will consist of, I, I don't think I can predict. I think anybody who comes out and clearly stands with the democratic rights of the Iranian people, anyone who is clearly rejects the use of violence and torture in the past, anyone who is honest about their own roles, and in those brutalities, in those murders, in the killing of 4,000 people in prison, all of these things, uh, I think if people are clear about it, if they're transparent, if they're honest, uh, I think they can be part of a, a better tomorrow, a, a tomorrow that people will be judged based on what they can offer to Iran rather than based on a tendency to punish them for what they might have done in the past. I want to just close with us coming back to the U.S.-Iran relationship. At the end of your book, you made a very interesting statement where you said that the Shah's regime went into crisis in 1977 because of three things. His declining health, the sharp decline in the price of oil, and then interestingly, you said Jimmy Carter's human rights policies. Why was a U.S. government with human rights concerns a problem for Iran? And, and would that today also be a problem for Iran? Well, first of all, it was in 1977 because everyone read that in the Iranian opposition, and the Shah read this, these comments, these human rights comments, as being critical of the Shah, and thus the opposition saw the Shah as vulnerable. The same rhetoric will not have the same impact because this is not a regime that is as interested as the Shah in having good cordial relationship with the United States. This is a regime that is going to do whatever it is going to take to stay in power, that the Shah's attempt to satisfy and keep his image in Western media and with Western leaders is completely wanting in this regime. This is a regime that, although it pays attention to international media, uh, it is first and foremost interested in its own self-preservation and can ignore and appear to ignore uh, these calls, but the Shah didn't, and the Shah was, because of his weakness again, uh, was all too dependent on uh, support from the United States. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Milani. My pleasure. Abbas Milani is the Hamid and Christina Mogaddam Director of Iranian Studies at Stanford University. His new book, The Shah, is a biography of the last king of Iran. Thank you.
listening to New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. Thompson's new book, Habibi, you will think it is a sacred book. It is bound in what looks like hardened brown leather, and its spine and cover are gilded with ancient trims. But it's not a holy book. It is, in fact, a graphic novel about Islam, Islamophobia, the environment, and modern-day slavery. And it's all written by a young man whose own background as an evangelical Christian would seem to be the farthest thing from an artist who gracefully recreates ancient Quranic verses. Craig joins us today to talk about Habibi. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you, Shireen. So tell us what your book is about. (laughs) What a question to start with. Uh, The book is sort of an Arabian Nights epic. Um, It's... At its core, it's it's about a relationship between two child slaves, and uh, and it's a fairy tale taking place in in this this world that's outside of any particular geography or time, um, but um, draws on a lot of contemporary issues around religion and sexuality, and maybe predominantly water crisis. That's that's a massive book in a nutshell. I, I've got to tell our listeners who who have not seen the book Habibi yet that it's enormous, and it's over 650 pages long, and it's been bound to look like a holy book. So what is the, what is the reasoning behind that? Could it be considered sacrilegious, what you've done? Uh, sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, that's part of the intent, that it's this mashup between the, the sacred medium of holy books, like the Quran or the Bible, and the very uh, vulgar pulp medium of comic books. Um, so there's this, this constant juxtaposition in the book of sacred and profane, of human ugliness and spiritual beauty, and then of the relationship between words and pictures. And on some level, a word is very pure, where a picture has this sort of, could have a vulgar quality. And that's a meditation on comics in that sense. How long did you spend to write and draw this book? Because you, you not only wrote it, you, you drew it. That took far too long, uh, nearly seven years. Uh, from the moment where I uh, started working on it in earnest... Um, to today's publication, it, it's been seven years. So you said that the the geographic location of the story is not specifically defined, but we understand it to be somewhere in the Middle East, correct? Not necessarily. I mean, it takes place in this, you know, I was borrowing from uh, 1001 Nights and a lot of the tropes in there and this sort of fantastical, sensationalized elements of desertscapes and harems and whatnot. Um, but then mashing it up with elements um, that informed this sort of water crisis theme. So um, globalization, modernization, pollution. And um, so, yeah, again, I, I'm using the word mashup again. It's a mashup between the old and new world. It, I'm drawing fast and loose from research from all different locations. And ultimately, I think the core of the story is just coming from from this relationship between the two characters, which it came from within. Tell us about the characters, because you mentioned earlier that they're two 
slaves, essentially. Tell us who they are and, and, and how they how they came to be slaves, basically, because that's that's where you start your book out. Yeah, they're 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 refugees. They're escaped slaves. Uh, one is an orphan. There's not a lot of backstory for Zam, the little boy. Uh, Dodola is married very young at uh, the age of nine, and her husband is very soon after murdered. Um, and they meet each other in a slave market, and the and the slave markets are sort of. Um, the sort of uh, markets you would see in a sort of Orientalist painting from like sort of like um, North African or, or Eastern African sort of um, classical depiction of these things. But, um, uh, the you know, in terms of slavery, I was really researching modern day slavery. I mean, slavery is uh, more prominent in, now than ever before in human history. I mean, it has different labels. Um, and one probably one of the biggest labels is globalization and, you know, international trade. So you're covering slavery and you're covering environmental disaster. Is this the, the first definitive um, sort of social activist comic book that's out there? No, because it's, it's not <laughs> academic. I mean, there are people doing, in my opinion, much more crucial work, like Joe Sacco. His stuff is have meticulously researched. The author of Palestine yes, comic series. Yes, And so, I mean, he's working with nonfiction and he's working with journalism in comics form. This and Art still, Spiegel. Yeah. Art Spiegel with Mouse. Yes. Um, yeah, Art Spiegelman also Spiegelman. Would, would... But he is working in a memoir form to some degree. He, uh, And I know there's been some other experimentations with like uh, doing um, real, true nonfiction and documentative work in comics. But this book is still, at its essence fiction and a fairy tale, um, you know, allegory. It's drawing from a lot of um, crucial topics, but, I, you know, I'm not an academic and I don't want to, like, advertise the book as such. Who did you write the book for? Um, well, all artists say that they write foremost for themselves, and that's really the only audience you can expect. Um, but, uh, you know, the book has a certain post-9-11 energy, and that there was so much Islamophobia happening in the States and in, in the media uh, that for myself, I was seeking to better understand Islam. And as soon as I looked into it, I saw the beauty of Islam. And, and, um, and, and as I opened dialogues with Muslim friends, I saw more and more the connections between um, Abrahamic faiths. And, and I got really inspired by um, Islamic arts, and, and that's there in the present in the pages. So Arabic calligraphy and geometric design and ornamentative design, all these things that evolved so much further um, than they did in the quote-unquote West because of this supposed prohibition of representational imagery. You can't draw an image of of the human face, essentially, in Islamic art, at least at in the in the old days, that yeah, was the, the case. Yeah, the old days. I don't and think that's... there's any Quranic <laughs> reference that prohibits that. But, you know, people have, in the same way that in sort of Christianity, people have sort of conjured up certain rules. Um, they're missing some of the points. But, yeah, um, in the Hadiths or something. They're, hadiths. They're, in the Hadiths, hadiths it's mentioned. Pardon yeah. my pronunciation. In the Hadiths. <laughs> it's funny because I was pronouncing that Hadiths, and then someone corrected me at a different station. I'm like, okay, Hadiths, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, in the Hadiths, I mean, there are some prohibitions of image making, but those also exist in um, in Christianity and Judaism. I mean, they're overlooked a lot of times, but um, making an idol is is a sin. Are you Muslim? No, no, I'm. I don't identify with any religious be belief, and I guess that's the core of my own beliefs that religions are man made and just set up boundaries between 
people and cultures. So I'm much more interested in a sort of spiritual life that's about bringing down those boundaries. I, I am inspired by the esoteric takes on like, like, like Sufism and Kabbalah and, and Gnostic Christianity, uh, which is much more about a sort of ecstatic perception, a divinity, and it's not about these sort of human boundaries and dogma. Do you speak Arabic? No, no. I had, I had some great friends that were helping me as consultants on the book. Uh, so yeah, I had, you know, a disclaimer, I don't speak or write Arabic. I learned just the, the 28 letters of the alphabet, and that helps me uh, identify words in a sentence if I know the Arabic word. But really, I relied pretty heavily on friends that were fluent in Arabic, uh, who would occasionally translate things from English into Arabic for me, or catch the little mistakes I made in my um, essentially copying, you know. There's more than 28 letters, by the way. But the oh, th- what, are the tw- what are the letters? <laughs> the, the third question I have in the series of trying to understand how a young man from Portland, Oregon, came to write this extraordinary book um, called Habibi is, have you traveled to the Middle East and to Arabic and, and uh, other lands that, that are covered or portrayed in some way in your book? No, I, I haven't, other than uh, some, some travel throughout Morocco. Uh, but no, and again, the book, I think that's because the book is not a, a fiction, I'm sorry, it's not nonfiction, it's not a research-driven book. Uh, Zam, a character in the story, talks about seven layers of heaven above and seven layers of hell below, and a 15th layer in between where all of human existence takes place. And uh, it's a battlefield. And that's how I thought of this project. The the core, that emotional core, that 15th layer is the relationship between these two characters. And um, that was always the, the, the motivation or the driving force. At times, I I indulged the idea of, of traveling. For instance, I drew a lot of uh, visual um, reference from Turkey, and I thought it would be great to go on a little field trip. But, um, but there wasn't, I don't know, I didn't have the resources necessarily to do it. And I also thought of it as a bit of a distraction from the actual emotional core of what I wanted to tell. What is the emotional core of what you wanted to tell? Because it, it is, at its core, from what I can tell as a reader, a story of two children who have been abandoned in many ways. Yeah, that's, you're hitting it on the head. Um, and it's about two very um, tr- sexually traumatized characters. And the question, if um, if two traumatized people can sort of come together and in relationship, in in a, in a place of healing with each other, um, and you know it's about the experience of uh, in relationships. Uh, y- you can feel like you can carve out a shelter in another person in the middle of a cold and ugly world, but um, to really be present in that relationship, you also have to heal yourself. You can't depend on another for salvation. That, in a sense, is a form of idolatry and the prohibition of making images, making another person into an image. Did you, were you concerned as, uh, when the book came out that, that you could become part of that sort of activism against idolatry and, and the whole conflict over Islam and, and co- comics and cartoons in particular? Did you feel you could get caught up in that? It's a, it's a topic that a lot of people are very sensitive about. Um, I, d- I didn't worry about it too much, partly because I had the sort of reassurance of my small group of Muslim friends that were helping me as a consultant. And, uh, you know, so I'd measure sort of sensitive issues with them and um, relied a lot on their encouragement. 
Um, and then also, I, I think it's it's kind of insulting to also tiptoe around certain subjects. Uh, the Muslims I know are, are very open-minded. And uh, I, I thought it was, you know, I don't like the super PC attitude towards some people who just want to avoid any kind of dialogue about these topics. Tell us about comics and what they mean to understanding other people. Well, one of the things is I think that comics is one of the most intimate art forms. Um, certainly in terms of construction, a single person can realize every element. You can't do that in film very easily. Um, in prose, you can, but prose has this boundary of um, the words being set in type. So there's this le- level of separation from the reader. But comics are maybe one of the last hand-drawn art forms. So what you see on paper is the artist's handwriting, and uh, the drawings are a form of handwriting too. Um, so I, I think that's why it's been used a lot as a as a medium for memoirs. Um, like you mentioned Art Spiegelman, you know, there's there's plenty of books about the Holocaust, um, but he took it to a whole new level when he introduced uh, this memoir and, and all the dynamics of his relationship with his father and those complications, and then also put it in drawn form, and then was even defined enough to put it in like anthropomorphic animal form. So um, those, the, it's it's easy, I think, to add those extra layers of metaphor or whatever in the comics medium. You mentioned to us earlier in the interview that you set out to write this comic and draw this comic because of the climate of Islamophobia and and just general sort of misinformation about the other that mm-hmm. that you experienced in this country since 9/11. Not a lot of people go through the length of spending 7 years drawing and writing a comic book to combat that that sort of hysteria. Why did you do it? How are you different from everyone else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian household, and we were raised with a lot of attitudes about the other. In fact, I came from an evangelical Christian household, so even other um, divisions of Christianity, like Catholics and Lutherans, I was taught were going to hell because they didn't have true faith. So, I mean, that's something I process in my work. I, I mean, I was brought up in a culture that was all about creating separations. And when I was able to come into my own in my adult life, the more people I met, uh, the more those barriers started coming down. And I realized that people that were supposed to be evil by my parental standards uh, were amazing. And uh, so that that is really a theme of the book about um, all these imagined boundaries between people. So quote unquote, East and West or male and female um, Christian, Jew, Muslim, all these are just labels. They're imaginary boundaries, which um, I just wanted to sort of reject those labels. Thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Thank you, Sherry. Craig Thompson is the author and artist of the new graphic novel, Habibi. to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. There aren't many of them out there, Korean-American comedians, but Steve Byrne is one of them. 
He'll be performing at the Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend, and he joins us today to talk comedy. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So who is the real Steve Byrne? I mean, I'm not talking about that myth the paparazzi have created, but the real one. Uh, there's been no myth by the paparazzi, <laughs> unless you count uh, my, my brother taking a picture phone of me, uh, passed out on his couch while he drove me. That, there's, there's no paparazzi. There's no myth. Uh, he's, he's a guy that enjoys being in his underwear watching Star Wars on DVD. Is that it? I mean, is that, is that what it's going to say in the Wiktionary when we look you up 10 years from now? Yeah, pretty much. They'll find me dead on a couch somewhere in like the Midwest at a Super 8 with a laptop on my stomach just in my underwear. I was watching uh, Revenge of the Sith. Are you making fun of Chris Farley? Uh, I don't know where you drew up that, that correlation, but that that's uh, whatever you're smoking, I'd love to smoke it. That'd be, that'd be great <laughs> to be on the same stuff. Okay, so you started out your comedy career, correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, by being a receptionist at the famous Caroline's Comedy Club in New York City. Was that part of your grand plan, or, or was that a No, accident? no, no. It was, not, it was never a grand plan to be a receptionist, by the way. Uh, no, not at all. I just got a, just kind of got a crap job out of college just to, to make ends meet, and I, I walked into Caroline's, and they had just fired somebody. So I walked in at the right time. The manager was right there. He said, great start tomorrow, and I started sweeping floors and watching all these great stand-up comedians. I thought that looks like fun. So I worked there for a good four or five months. I built up my courage, and I uh, went up to the Upper West Side of New York City and uh, gave it a whirl. And it was one of those things right after I I did it. It's kind of like the first time you kiss a girl. You're just like, all right, that's it for me. Uh, this is great. I got to do that again. So that's what it became for me. I just thought this is what I want to do. So you didn't actually plan on going into comedy after college? No, not at all. I, I didn't know. I hadn't even been to a stand-up comedy show uh, or in my life until I worked at Karen's. It, it, the thought never crossed my mind of being a comedian. I didn't know that you could make a living at being a comedian. So, are, are you making? And I still a, don't know that you can make. I was going to say, are you making a living as a comedian right now? No, now I am. Yeah, absolutely. It took it took a I, yeah it took a few years, you know, two or three years to get going. Maybe my fourth year, I was paying my rent solely from just doing stand up. Nice. So, so we're interested in your background as well. Uh, Steve, you're Korean-American. What does that mean to you? What does that make me? What does it mean to you? What does it make oh. you? <laughs> oh, it makes me an American. That was the basis of my uh, second Comedy Central special. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I just, you know, there's a lot of comics that choose a side to milk it or, or, or to be, you know, to draw an audience, I guess. But I always just thought I want everybody. So, you know, I'm Korean and I'm Irish, but I'm American. I, I look at everybody as Americans because of that. I think it kind of gives you free range to to kind of goof off and kind of make fun of everybody in a fun way, not in a, not in a uh, exclusive way, but an inclusive way. Okay. So that that's interesting. So you, you consider yourself American first. You're also known for being um, a big fan of the Army. Your family has served in the Army, your father, your little brother. What, what, is the, what does the Army mean to you when you say that you're—I've read that you're a big fan. What does that mean? Uh, I'm— not a fan. I'm just a supporter, I suppose, of the troops. Uh, you know, my brother served, all my uncles, my father served, uh, and I've done a lot of USO tours, and it, it, it means a lot to me what the men and women do to serve our country, going overseas, living sometimes in some really difficult uh, conditions, especially in the Middle East. You know, I've been to Asia, I've been to Europe, I've been to the Middle East, uh, I've done some bases here in the States, and it's just, it's it's a tough lifestyle, but it's a very admirable one, and, and it's one that 
I probably would never choose. I, I, I don't think that I'm that disciplined. I wanted to tell jokes and wake up at noon. But, uh, you know, I tip my cap to them and I do everything I can to let them know how grateful I am. Is it hard to talk about politics uh, as a comedian? It's, it's hard to talk about politics um, if it's not funny because, you know, the thing about, like, The Daily Show, it's very funny, but it's going to be hilarious to you if you're a liberal. If you're conservative, it's not that funny. So, you know, there's very few people that can talk politics and not be polarizing uh, people that kind of go down the middle. You know, Chris Rock is one of those guys that walks the fine line, although I think he leans a little more uh, to the liberal side. He does kind of walk that fine line of saying, you know, I like this and I also like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's how most people people are. But there are extremists. And I think that when you are an extremist, that when you tilt one way or the other, you turn a lot of people off, but you've built such a solid fan base with, with the other side, those are the people that will support you. So for me, again, I've always been somebody who wants to be inclusive of everybody and strike tones or themes that resonate with everybody as opposed to being exclusive to just one group. How could you do that, though, as a comedian? I mean, comedians make fun of people. You're always going to be isolating someone. Well, we all want to be in love. We all want to have friends. We all want to be accepted. We all want the same things in life. And I think that when you talk about those things and you talk about a broad theme, and I think the show is about being American. It was about we all inhabit, you know, this great country. So why not just accept each other for that and look at each other as Americans instead of Italian-Americans or African-Americans? I mean, African-Americans, like how many African-Americans have even been to Africa? How many Italian-Americans, they can both beat their chest and brag about being Italian and, oh, you know, I got a bad attitude. I'm Italian. It's like, okay, have you been to Italy? It's like, you know, the Jersey Shore, they go to Italy. The Italians don't even want them there. So it's like, why can't we all just look at each other as just Americans and go from there? Is it dangerous for people like the Jersey Shore to be going to Italy and claiming themselves to be Italian-American when, in your opinion, they're just American? I don't think it's dangerous. I think it's good. I think it's good to... There's a lot of people that, that, for example, hate America and hate for what it stands for and hate the government and hate this, hate that. It's like, well, let me see your passport. Where have you been? What, what, what can you really compare it to? Because I think once you travel abroad and you see how things are or see how beautiful Europe it is, but also how old it is, you know, it's kind of decrepit. You know, there's some great old buildings, but it's, it's old. So I, I think that when you do come back to this country, you do appreciate it. So I think it's great that anybody would go travel abroad. And I think that when you do come back home, you have a, a deeper appreciation for it. So you you travel a lot. You you once mentioned that that that's the hardest part of being a comedian. What's what's the thing that you look forward to most when you come back to the states? My bed. I I really <laughs> they don't have beds it. anywhere else. They do, they do, but it's just like you could put me up. I, I could go to Houston tomorrow. I could go to you know Cleveland tomorrow, and they put me up in the nicest hotel room in the world. But it just doesn't matter. I'd rather be in my own bed. It's like everybody everybody I know wants to go on vacation. All I want to do is go home because my life is, is a 50-week vacation. I'm in a different city every week. So for me, I just, want to, I just want to be home in my own bed, sit on my own couch, watch my own TV. It doesn't sound exactly as glamorous as it looks, huh? It's not glamorous at all. It's just it's a lot of fun. You know, you travel, you do all that work. But at the end of the day, getting up for the hour, the two hours that you work each night all the preparation, you know, it's a great job. I mean, you, your end result is making people laugh. You're, you're, you're trying to elicit a positive emotion out of people and to go into a room full of strangers and get that and make people smile. That's a, that's a great thing. I mean, step into an elevator and 
go in an elevator and smile at a person. They smile back. It feels good. But go in an elevator. Don't smile. Don't even just ignore them. And then it's an uncomfortable elevator ride. So that kind of positive feeling you get when you do smile with somebody, you get that for an hour straight with a group of strangers. It's fun. It's very redeeming. And it's a, again, it's a positive emotion. I'd rather go out and do something nice. That's fun. That, that again is inclusive instead of something that's polarizing and mean spirited. So what if you go up on stage and they don't smile back? What do you do with hecklers? Hecklers, it's, it's something that, you know, again, with being a comedian, you're professional. You know, you're getting a check at the end of the day. This is how you pay your mortgage or how you pay your rent. You've always got to be better than the audience. You know, somebody yelling stuff out, that's just an amateur. They've probably never even been on stage before. You've always got to be better than the situation. So hecklers don't bother me. I've, I've dealt with every, every type of heckler you can imagine. And, again, you just got to keep your cool. And the end result, again, is making people laugh. And if you lose your cool and it gets angry, the tone in the room changes and things aren't funny anymore. So it's rare that I, you know, again, it's you're, I'm a professional comedian. I know I can go into a room and make people laugh. It's, it's not a big thing. What is it about comedy that is so difficult if you're not good at it? <laughs> well, it's uncomfortable when, when you, you know, even now when you're, when you're writing a new joke, when you're writing a new special, it's very difficult to go on stage in front of a group of strangers and say something that you believe is funny and have them not laugh. I mean, it's uncomfortable. But as, again, as a comedian, you go up there every night and that's something you just get used to. A lot of people just go running for the hills and feel embarrassed. It's like letting somebody read your journal. But you get used to it, and you're like, all right, well, here's something that works. I'll win you back, and then I'll try something else again that's new. So that, that part of it isn't, isn't that hard after a while. It is at the beginning. Are comedians just more resilient than everybody else? They can take more knocks? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't know how to. I, I wouldn't want to answer for the rest of the stand-up community. But um, I think there is a, uh, there's a commitment to being on stage and trying to do the best you can. So if there's resiliency in that, then yes, yeah, yeah, I, I suppose that that's a that's a good way to put it. You sound like a corporate sort of motivational speaker. You don't sound like a comedian right now. Well, I entertain from the hours between eight to eleven. Uh, so I just kind of, I'm not one of those guys that's always on. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of guys that I know that are always on. I'm just not one of those guys. I just, you know, I, I take a lot of preparation in in terms of what I try to say at night and have fun with it. So, yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) No problem, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Steve Byrne is a Korean-American comedian. He'll be performing at the Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.